brought to you with the natural goodness of Viridian Nutrition, available at Browns. I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Today's guest's Facebook page description states, visual artworks, illustrations, portraits, cartoons, visuals created by George Melia, a communications academic, artist and writer living on the island of Malta, well known for his poetic art, satirical cartoons, comic strips and book illustrations. But... As George says himself, he also produced radio and television programs, has produced books, magazines, and not incredibly well, websites, and massively interested in anything relating to social media. George is also an associate professor and head of the Department of Media and Communications at the Faculty of Media and Knowledge Science, Sciences, University of Malta. And if that wasn't enough, George Malia has published books of fiction for children, which he has also illustrated, as well as books of experimental short stories. He produced what, at the time, was Malta's only regular socio-political comic strip, One Family, in the Sunday Times between 1993 and 2008. And his zep, humorously mapping the COVID-19 pandemic comic strip, appears twice weekly in the Times of Malta. George, welcome to the show, but can I just tell you, that is a very intimidating resume. I think I need to shorten it. <laughs> I, 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 just listening to that, I was saying, who is this guy? This it's, is you, Yeah, George. I know, I know. It's, it's pretty terrible. I mean, I think, I think the first time I actually made a CV a few years ago, I realized it came to something like 28 pages. And I said, bloody hell. <laughs> you know, and I said, and I looked back and I said, okay, what can I remove from this? And I couldn't remove anything. It was the problem. <laughs> You know, was, I had, that I was had a, horrendous. I had a four-page resume, and and my partner told me your your resume has to be one page. George, that can't happen. Your resume is bigger than the Bible. Um, well, let's just say it's not as sacred. Let's leave it. Uh, I, I think I think we will definitely need to shorten that. I mean, just <laughs> listening to you saying that, good God, that's half the show done. Yes, it is. It's ready. There you go. First up, I'm so glad that we've finally been able to meet because we've been trying to book this interview for months and months and months. So tell me, what keeps you so busy on a daily basis? Ah, oh, okay. I, okay, you thought the resume was long. <laughs> ah, okay, first of all, I love my job. I have to begin by saying that because when people hear me commenting about it, they're going to think that I hate it. I don't, actually. I love my job. I am an academic. I love my students. I love lecturing, okay? But the point is, there is an enormous amount of work involved in that. Um, talking to students, especially over the COVID periods, was, you know, essential. And it took up most of my time. I'm also missing a couple of posts at university, which I then need to carry myself and stuff like that. So the administration of a department, which is the largest department in my faculty, 
with undergraduates, postgraduates, doctorate students, etc., etc., doing a bit of research occasionally, organizing, you know, the occasional conference here and there. Um, I co-organize a conference in Greece annually. We go to a Greek island every year, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, but it is a conference. Um, you know, and my books and my writing and correcting and preparing and, yeah, well, full stop. Okay, I'm I told exhausted, you. I told George, you. just listening I'm, I'm to a workaholic. It's a problem. I work non-stop. I can't help it. I'm, I work all the time, all the way well, till dinner, because say, then I can't after that, because I have my whiskeys. <laughs> you like whiskey? Yep, I'm a whiskey okay, man. Okay, we have another thing in common. I'm a whiskey man. Fantastic. We'll arrange for that later. There we go. But you say that it's, you know, it's a bit of a curse to be a workaholic, but I don't think it is, because you give so back so much to us. And I'm thrilled that you do. Can I just ask you, what is knowledge science? Oh, knowledge sciences. Okay, that, that's the, 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 fi- the faculty name. It's media and knowledge sciences. Well, I suppose anything that contributes to knowledge and that is studied is knowledge science. So we, the faculty actually has cognitive science. It has library studies. It has, of course, media and communications. It has all sorts of different areas where knowledge is studied. And that is why it's knowledge sciences. Media is separate because even though media is also a study of a certain type of knowledge, but it does tend to stand by itself, if you know what I mean. So that's what it is. But you also mentioned before we sat down to to have this interview that you also mentioned that you teach graphic design. Well, I actually, my post, my original post at university nearly 30 years ago was in desktop publishing. <laughs> That old kind of yeah, school yes, desktop yes, publishing. Yes. So I was one of the first people in Malta to use Macintosh computer for online, you know, on screen creation of a newspaper. Uh, when I sent her, actually, I had a, a, you know, a campaign mapping the pioneers of Apple in Malta. I was one of the poster boys. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, well, there you go. And so sort of that's, that's what it was. I started teaching uh, graphic design. I started teaching desktop publishing back then. And that remained my post until, of course, I got my associate professorship. And then sort of you tend to lose it along the way. Right now, it's just a professor of communication. I love the way that you, you mentioned until I got my associate pres- professorship and blah, blah, blah. As if there was nothing. I mean, congratulations to you. And I can see that you really are a workaholic, but somebody who's very, very passionate about well, giving back. It, well, the passion is what drives me. I've, if I lose the passion, I think I'll die. <laughs> I think for anybody yeah. who follows you, that yeah. is very, very evident. And I want to talk about each of these passions in turn. And I want to start off with the fact that you've just produced, you mentioned the fact that you're a work, workaholic, but you've just produced a book of Zep. It's a massive book. It's 100 pages of full-color A4 you know, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to cause the heavens to produce. So I'm actually <laughs> not going to publish it in the traditional way, but it's going to be on pre-order. On yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know what it is, it's, it's the first 200 strips yep. from the twice-weekly feature in The Times. Yes. It's only available until the end of this month. Yep. So and if you want to pre-order it, it has to be done before the end of April. Indeed. And I just love Zep, and it's one of the reasons that I started following you. Because it's a really brilliant, satirical look at a situation that's affected us all. Sometimes not satirical, sometimes very direct and very serious. You're absolutely wonderful, Trudy, you know that? (laughs) You're talking about a character I've created in glowing terms. My God, thank you. Well, it's... But I'm speechless and that never happens. But George, this has 
broken down, ZEP has broken down the pandemic into a way that we can all relate to. And you're voicing what we all want to say yeah, that was through a cartoon strip. The point is, I was locked down like everybody else, and I was, and I live alone, so logically, sort of, it was even worse for me than for most people. And I had just gone through a bit of a trauma, and that made it all worse, you know what I mean? So I needed a creative outlet. I mean, I had already sort of just finished a 37 painting exhibition, which only lasted for a week because of lockdown. And I was working on a couple of books. I did a book for children, which sort of in a week, actually, um, when they came, uh, when, when, when they, the schools were locked down, I wanted them to read something which was topical, which they could identify with. So I had to write this adventure about kids locked down in Malta. You know what I mean? So I did that. And then I started thinking, I said, okay, um, the comic strip has always been my thing. I love comic strips because the comic strip can say so much, can say much more than a single panel cartoon because you can build it up, build it up, build it up, and then sort of demolish it in the last panel. You know, that's where the denouement is. That's where the joke is. And I kept on thinking. I said, okay, what are the funny sides of something as drastic and as negative and as unique to the world as this? So I sort of started thinking in terms of, okay, eating too much. All right, good. Um, you know, a, a woman logged up with her kids. Okay, there we go. And I started sort of looking for the sort of silver lining, a tiny bit of the silver lining while defining what we were all feeling and putting it into words. Because very often in communications, as you know, you need to see it in other people to say, okay, it's not just me. And I wanted to put all of that so that people would say, okay, it's not just me, and laugh a bit. Because it's very difficult to laugh at yourself. But it's very difficult to laugh at somebody who's fictitious and who's reflecting your life so closely. So that's how it started. Well, I, I, it, it did it, develop, though, so, but that was the beginning. That was it. That was what launched it. <laughs> For me, in the pandemic, and as we've gone through the last two years, because we're over two years in this situation now, it has so often voiced what we sometimes fear to say. You know, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it out loud, but the pandemic has really sucked in so many ways. And you hit the nail on the head over and over and over again. And then people can realise that they're not the only person that's feeling this emotion. How did it then get picked up by the Times? Was it originally for the Times? Well, I mean, I mean, they know me. I mean, I suppose my cartoons are quite well known here in Malta. Um, and I was, of course. I, I did do One Family for 16 years in the Sunday Times. That followed, actually, a couple of years of doing a single panel for the Times itself, which was simply called George at that point in time. So I'm sort of quite well known as a cartoonist. Um, when my cartoon was, my comic strip was dropped by the Sunday Times, I actually had calls by a number of people asking me to do cartoons for them. I just said no, because I just wanted still to do my own thing. So when my idea came, um, when the idea came for Zip, and I drew, I, I just drew six strips at a go, you know, just to see, if, to test myself, to see if I could actually do this on a regular level. I dropped Mark Wood, um, you know, the editor of the, of the print edition of the Times, a line, and I said, look, I've got these, okay? And I knew that the Times was also, of course, going, like all newspapers, going through a bad time because, of course, of lack of advertising, et cetera, et cetera, linked to the pandemic. And they were also running Dilbert, which, which is um, drawn by a conservative 
busted, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, Scott Adams, I can't stand the guy. He's absolutely horrendous. And even though Dilbert can be funny at times, it tends to reflect his very conservative outlook on life. So I, I, I said, okay, dump Dilbert. And I'll give you this as my contribution to the Times. And I said, it's only on the condition that you really want it. It's not a question of sort of, you know, just because you're getting it, you, you, you sort of run it. And they sort of ran, uh, ran it by everybody. And everybody said, wow, yes, we'll go with this. And it's now in its 204 and fourths um, strip. <laughs> so, it's fantastic. Yeah, it works. And, and Mark we, is lovely. Mark is lovely. Mark sort of constantly sort of gives him feedback, so on and so forth. And he's never refused a single one so far. That's Even, brilliant. Because as I said, it, it quite often touches on things it, that... It is a time bit pungent at times, yeah. People <laughs> don't really want to talk about. And I'm not just sort of do, dealing with the pandemic right now only, because, of course, life in Malta, he sort of just cries for satire. <laughs> so I have to. You know well, this I mean? leads me yeah. very nicely yeah. on to something else I wanted to tackle. And that's because I love seeing on my newsfeed on social media uh, the illustrations that you've created from the people in the media. So it might be the Pope, uh, it might be Mario Azapardi, it might be Putin, or the murder victim, uh, Paulina yeah. Dem uh, Demska, Demska, which I know was very difficult. The, the, the communication around that that you wrote had been a very difficult one. But your illustrations absolutely light up uh, my newsfeed with these vibrant colours, but also stunning interpretations of the person of the moment. And it touches us in a way that other interpretations couldn't. I'm going to ask a number of questions. So how long have you been doing this? How did that start? And how is it that... These visuals, whether it be Pauline Dempska or whether it be the Pope, how it, or whether it be uh, Meatloaf, how is it that those touch us yeah. in a way that other communications don't? Well, I don't know. <laughs> You're <laughs> the, the media answer. man. How can you answer. not know? Well, I, all I can say is this. Um, I started drawing. I've always liked drawing portraits. Uh, I used to take photos of portraits, uh, of, you know, portrait photos of people because I love taking portraits. And so I also like drawing portraits. I, I've always liked it. Um, my style is very graphic. It, it, it's, it's pen and ink. It, it's crosshatch, you know, very traditional crosshatch, sort of etching style crosshatch. So, and then coloured in in very basic colours and just sort of comics-like. You know, I collect comics, so I love comics and, and, and obviously the comics colouring sort of is always there. I, I think it was when, when um, Robin Williams, it was when Robin, Robin Williams died that I first drew Robin Williams. And I realised that, you know, I was drawing somebody whom I, whose character I loved and who had just killed himself. And I wanted to put something in that face that indicated the sadness along with the smile. And I remember sort of putting shines, you know, shining droplets, if you like, in the eyes in order for them to look liquid, meaning there was sort of, you know, sort of almost hidden tears there, which really, really brought it out. And that was sort of what set me going. Um, I, whenever anybody died, who had influenced me in some way, whether it's a Maltese person or, you know, a big personality like Bowie and the rest of them, I just had to draw them. 
I just had to externalize what I was feeling. And very often, it was the awe I had of them or the feeling I had sort of, you know, for them that actually came out in the drawing. I don't try to. It just comes out. And that's where I think the punch is. I think the punch is in what I feel and then which then is replicated in the way that faces are drawn by me. But are they all of people who've died? Because just to no, make sure all. everybody knows, no. the Pope has not died. No, nor has my mum, thank God. <laughs> No, 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 nor have I, actually, because I've Excellent, drawn myself Excellent, because you did your self-portrait, yes, yes. Yes, a few times. Uh, but most of the time, in fact, I, people have got used to it now that when anybody dies who's of any significance, they wait for my portraits. And whenever I've drawn someone, just for the heck of it, like Neil Gaiman, for example, I got this, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, sort of, has Neil Gaiman died? Because people automatically associate any portrait I post now with somebody who's died, which is not a nice thing. But there you go. I mean, I suppose that also means I've got a following for my um, obituary portraits, let's call them that. Uh, but but, but it, it, most of the time, the people I draw are people who have touched me in one way or another. I, this is... An extraordinary story, and I love the fact that it yeah. started with Robin Williams yeah. and, and you wanting to yeah. to bring something extra to, to that portrait. Robin Williams, Bowie, and so many others. I actually had an, a, an exhibition, part of a, a Christmas exhibition in Sweden with the very first portraits, which, which, which went down quite well. <laughs> well, the wonderful thing about visuals is that they talk across, they speak across every single language. Yeah. You can see it. You don't need to be able to speak in a visual language And, and you need to feel everyone. it, of course. You need to feel Absolutely. it. That's the important thing. And that's the point, is that, that I remember you you, you drew, uh, is it Nighting, uh, Nightbird? Yes. And I saw yes, yes. this young lady that was who'd poignant. Yeah. passed away. Yeah. And I saw it. And yeah. it, I hadn't realised yeah. that she'd passed away until I saw your visual. Yeah, yeah. So and suddenly, and, and the point is, emotion. I had never heard of her. Up to that point, and then somebody posted that she died, and I was seeing Nightbird pop up on my timeline all the time, and I just checked the video, that, that, that famous video of her, where yeah. she actually talks about that, yeah. and she touched me so deeply, and the past few years have been very bad for me. I've, had, I've gone through some extremely negative times, and although I'm much better now, but uh, there are still moments where it's abject darkness, and seeing that positivity in that young girl who eventually died. I mean, she lost it. She lost the battle with cancer, which is absolutely horrible. I just had to put into images what I felt. The image was an extension of me at that point in time, wanting to be her. And even though she was dead, but she was alive. She was one of the most alive people I know. And of course, what I write along with the drawings, because I don't just draw them. I need to sort of put in into words. I think one of my best friends, who's also an artist, had once said that although I dabble in a lot of arts, my actual art is the writing. And I have to admit that he might be right, that my art is actually my writing. Um, all the rest is sort of an appendage of that, if you know what I mean. So I need to put it in there. I also need to put it into words. So the words and the picture are symbiotic, and they convey what I'm feeling at that moment. I mean, I wanted to be her. I wanted to have that feeling of giddiness at life when she was so close to death. Yes. Absolutely wonderful. I'm really glad that you do what you do. I had a couple of curious questions. How long do those illustrations take to do? 
A lot less than most people think. Oh, go on, surprise <laughs> me. I don't know, it varies. I mean, because I use crosshatch, which is, of course, a very, very exacting technique, because, you know, lots of, lots of little lines. There are thousands and thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of lines in illustration and drawing. Sometimes it takes me hours and hours and hours. But there are times when I can do it in an hour. And this, of course, is above and beyond all of your other commitments as well. Well, I, I, the point is, most people are a bit shocked when, you know, somebody's... They hear that somebody's died, it's out in public, and then an hour later there's, there's my sort of uh, obituary portrait of that person. I, hearing that it is an obituary and it's a, it's a translation and it, it's a, an expression of yeah. what's happened and a, a memory for that person, I am now, George, more of a fan of yours than I was before. So by the time we get to these... Oh this, yes, I know, by the time we get to this interview, it might just be obsessive fan-based. Uh, my first groupie. <laughs> My God, Trudy. I'm going to get a T-shirt with George Malia written across and I'm going to get one of those photographs of you and I'm going to put it here. I'm going to wear it everywhere. Listen, let's move on to you being a writer. You are obviously uh, also a writer and have produced a good number of books. And I was delighted to read in an interview that you have done with The Independent that your favourite author is Tolkien. Of course he is. And I wholeheartedly approve... But uh, I've only just returned uh, from a literary desert. I didn't read anything for 15 years. And then because of a work situation, I bought myself a Kindle and now I'm reading merrily every opportunity oh, I wonderful. can get. But 15 years I didn't read. Now, because you're a writer, I can ask you this. Do you think as society we are reading enough? Oh, as if. And does it really matter? Because we have Netflix and matters. we have social yes, media. It Why matters. would we need to yes, read? Yes, it matters. Of course it matters. Television, film, comics, which I collect, books, they're all different. They all strike you differently. I mean, I'm, I'm into audiobooks heavily because when I don't have time to read, I listen to books. I have a book in the car... Um, you know, going on in the car, I have a book on my mobile, and I have speakers on every room. <laughs> so I can Heavens them. above. Yes, all of them. And I have a smart home, so everything is voice controlled. Okay. Uh, it's as simple as that. So, you know, I just said sort of... To, 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 so the point is this, even listening to a book is different from reading a book. And it's the same book, but it's different. Because reading a book, you're internalizing it. When it's being performed by somebody else, it's somebody's interpretation of it. If you're watching a movie, of course, a movie is a completely different uh, medium to writing, to reading, because you can get, you know, pulled into a movie. You can, of course you can, easily enough. But the techniques that are pulling you into the movie are completely different from those techniques that are but pulling you into really writing. does it really matter, Of course George. it does. Of course well, it does. What, what's why, a book going to give me Do that you I've... always eat the same thing? You change your food, don't you? Not regularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you know what I mean. Though. Yes, I do but know you, what you mean. You do have a sort of, you do have a, a vari variation in your diet. So you're suggesting that that a book plays an important role in the variation diet of, of what we digest, of, of what we are. Of did what you see we what become. I did there? I, I yeah, took your... of what we become. Yeah, of course, of course it is. Point is this, you know, I'm I'm a certified bookworm. I don't read as much now as I used to. I don't have the time to, obviously. I wish I did. But, and a lot of the reading that I do is because of my work, because media and communications are constantly changing. So logically, I need to keep abreast of what's happening in the world. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be very good at what I do, which is as simple as that. But um, I, I love crime thrillers, for example. That's what I listen to <gasps> oh, all the too. time. On my on, no, my audio books are all crime thrillers. I grew up with science fiction, so and fantasy. So I have you know that was where my reading was when I was a kid. You know, ten years old, I never learned how to swim. And we had a place, well, uncles had play, a place by, on, by the beach. And I would just go there, sit on the rocks, and read, you know, two, three books a day. Yeah, Enid Blyton. But there you go. You see what I mean? George, I never we're heading into groupie status here. I'm, yeah, I'm getting, you know, you're becoming my superhero in, in one of these books. I'm not a superhero at all. I can't even swim, for God's sakes. You know, <laughs> Fabio Spiteri tried to teach me. Poor guy. You he know. did? He did. And he's the best on the island. And he tried and tried and failed. I think that must be the first ever time that Fabio Spiteri has failed in anything. <laughs> Fabio is also my trainer and he was on the podcast last week he's an so student I of shall... mine i taught him when he was 10 years old for god's oh, sakes fantastic. poor guy so he sort of you know when he took a photo he took a, he took a selfie of the two of us and he said i'm trying to pay him back a little bit <laughs> you know when we started l learning and he's such a lovely lovely man and he wonderful i'm just scared of water that's all that's well let, let's come back to that question of reading yeah. if we need to read if we are not reading enough how do we encourage people to read not by making them read you know but leaving books around kids for example if you leave kids if you leave look, look, the book i told you about the one i i i wrote specifically for children yes that yes. went viral literally you know people were suggesting it i was sent photos of my parents who actually printed the book out and the kid was reading it out of a folder you know and stuff like that so and, and, and I was getting messages like, you know, she doesn't like to read, but this she read over a couple of days. Do you have any more? <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. Absolutely wonderful things. Because it was there. It touched them. It's, they associated with it. They linked themselves to these characters who are now locked in and couldn't go out, couldn't see Granny, because otherwise they'd infect Granny and they love oh, Granny gosh. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then a fantasy story with sort of, sort of multi-Harry Potter-like characters that, that, sort of, that, that, that sort of enthralled them. So, you see, that, that worked. My website crashed. <laughs> um, when I translated it into English, um, I, I sort of put it out there, and my website crashed. And I was told that my website crashed by um, the head of the education department of New York State. And I was told, okay, but we're trying to download your book, but we can't. It's not coming in. And I checked and I found my whole website was down. And I couldn't understand why, because I had quite a large package. You know what I mean? Sort of in one of, This is amazing. It was a great data package. And I sort of, you know, I contacted my, 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 my server people and they said, well, about, I think, 100,000 gigabytes were downloaded, which I thought was absolutely idiotic because how the hell was that even possible? I think they exaggerated in order for me to buy a 200 euro data package, potentially. But I don't point, believe that. But the point is, that was the truth. And I found out that they had put the English version of the book on lists basically all over the world of books about the pandemic that people could download. That is incredible. And it was just it was one of those things, you know. This so, is and, incredible. See, and they read. You see, and even these kids who didn't like reading, they sort of felt an affinity with the characters and read. And I'm hoping that sort of got them reading. So, I, you know, I, I was the chairman of the National Book Council for nine years. And we did a lot of research about this, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that we found was that people didn't read because they didn't have books. And as books were there, 
people will just be interested. And my last book is actually a book of micro stories. It's a book of a hundred people. And I'm a bit of an empath. So obviously, if I see anybody in the street, I'm going to sort of dig deep into what I think they are. And I wrote 100 people in 200 words each and then drew them. And it came out uh, a couple of years ago. And it really is a very popular book. Why? Because people can read a whole story in two and a half minutes. That's another thing. Most people are afraid of the length of books. So, there you go. so start reading micro stories and I'm, go back I'm, to it. And... I'm, I'm happy with my Kindle. I'm loving it. Uh, We're gonna, my last question to you, through your illustrations, yeah. whether they are books or comic strips or portraits, or, as we've spoken about during the course of this uh, interview, you've been able to make political comments and sometimes criticisms. Yeah. And yeah. Sometime, somehow, because they're filtered through a visual, they're very impactful, but they're not George Malia. It's almost like you can hide behind the visual and it is a very welcome voice because you get away with saying an awful lot that if it was somebody standing up on a stage speaking into a mic, they would not be able to get away with. However, in the Maltese culture, Standing up and speaking out is something that is not that common. Yeah, but I've done it. You have done it and yes. you've mastered it. Do you think this is something that we should be doing more of, that of more she, people should be speaking out? I was one of the first cartoonists in Malta to actually sign my name. You know, where everybody was using nom de plumes, etc. I only had a very, very... But why, George, was, why? Because I always believe that if I believe something... I'm going to say it, no matter how many so people, people are going to be don't? offended. Because we live in a culture that unfortunately tends to, you know, um, you know, prefer impunity to something else. It's, we're, we're living in a culture, possibly because we're so tiny. You know, we're, we're, we're quite parochial as a people. We can't help it. We're talking about Malta now, okay? We are quite parochial. And we tend to, you know, club together according to the, the feast we support or the party we support or the team we support, not Manchester United. Thank um, you. There we go. Um, and you know what I mean? So, so we're like that. So it's, it's very easy because everybody knows everybody to not hide, not be able to hide. And a lot of people will want to throw a stone and then hide their hand, which is absolutely horrible. But it's because everybody's so well known here. You understand the point? Yes. So that is probably the reason for it. Also, people tend, we have created a, unfortunate, and I hate this, we have created an atmosphere of fear where you're afraid to lose your job if you, you know, say something against the government, for example. Go to hell with it. They can sack me tomorrow if they want to. It's no problem. But I'm going to say what I, what I believe. And they, everybody knows that I have enough value to criticize anybody I want to criticize. And not just one side. But I don't do it artificially. If one side deserves 80% of my criticism, that's what they're getting. I'm not going to put a 50-50 just so that I look balanced. To hell with it. Has it ever... Bitten you on the butt? Oh, a few times, yeah. I've been being threatened, yeah. I, even my mum received threatening letters at one point, ages back, way back when. I mean, it's okay. But it's okay, I get... I, 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 and it's fine. never stopped you I've from I've even had min out. a minister phoning me from abroad, you know, screaming at me. 
And I stopped him by saying that my next cartoon was going to be about ministers spending public funds calling cartoonists from abroad. You know, so that sort of thing. That was, this was way back. And then eventually this uh, politician actually admitted that that was, you know, that cartoon was part of his process of political maturation, which is absolutely wonderful. So, but see, it's, is, it's never, you've never been threatened or been called out enough to stop you. I won't. I won't stop. No, but the point is this. If you believe something, Trudy, you have to say it. You have to. You owe it to yourself. I'm a communicator. That is my job. I'm a professional communicator. If I believe something enough, I have to say it. And I have to say it in a way that is the most effective. And cartoons are very effective. Yes, they are. Because people will see them. They will get incredibly angry at them, of course, if they disagree with uh, whatever side it is that I'm attacking at that point in time and others would laugh their heads off and they share them and they become a talking point and that's what it's about because a cartoon will punch you where it hurts and that's the important thing because if it doesn't then it's not a very good cartoon is it it's a damn squib George Amelia you have been everything and so much more than I hoped for Thank you so much for being on the interviewer. Thank you so much for your incredible contribution to society, to our thinking processes, to our reading, to everything that you do. You are brilliant. And I, I'm going to get that T-shirt. And if I, you see me stalking you outside your house, that's me. That's your groupie. Uh, well, and if they see me walking around now with a head too heavy for me to carry, they'll know that it's a truly care boost to the ego. Yeah, there you go. George, thank you so much for being. I'm so glad we made, made this happen. It was a happen. great pleasure, Trudy. Thank you so thank much you. for this.